0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today uh, we're going to touch on history that's a little more modern than what we usually cover on the podcast, and that is the Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR. I recently was lucky enough to get to chat with author David E. Hoffman, who, as you will hear in the course of this interview, is really an expert on that conflict and its roots. Mr. Hoffman has been
0: a journalist for three decades, and he was covering politics during the Reagan presidency, including working as a White House correspondent during the U.S.-Soviet summits at that time. He served as the Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post from 1995 until 2001 and then as the foreign editor and assistant managing editor for Foreign News.
1: He continues his journalism career and he's written several books as well about Russian and Soviet politics, including the Pulitzer Prize winning The Dead Hand, which details the end of the Cold War.
0: Mr. Hoffman's most recent book, The Billion Dollar Spy, is some exceptionally thrilling nonfiction. So without further ado, here is Holly's interview with David E. Hoffman where they're going to talk about the subject of the book and the nature of the Cold War.
1: So, as I said, today we are lucky enough to be talking to David E. Hoffman, the author of The Billion Dollar Spy, among other fabulous books. Uh, And we're going to be talking about the Cold War and some spy techniques and a little story that unfurls in the midst of that. So first, I have to say, uh, the Cold War is one of those things that many people, even people like me that are old enough to have remembered that period of time, sort of have a little bit of a nebulous knowledge about, uh, in large part because so many of the machinations that were happening were covert. And there's also been kind of the... Um, the watering down of what we know through fictionalized media that portrays it in ways that are not accurate. So I'm curious what you think are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about Cold War espionage.
2: The Cold War was this giant four decade confrontation between two blocks of countries. Each had their own ideology. Uh, The West stood for individual liberties and freedom and democracy and the soviet union with communism promised some kind of utopia someday it never really materialized but in this conflict which was carried out in propaganda and diplomacy it was also carried out by building these huge and very frightening nuclear weapons the missiles launched at each other but there was also a shadow war a war in dark alleys and that was the war of intelligence And one of the misconceptions is that it was always carried out with covert action. We like to think about covert action because we see and read about it. The Bay of Pigs was a real covert action. Um, American and other spy masters sent spies behind the lines into the Soviet Union, parachuting them in. That was actually trying to do something to change the course of history. But there was another side of it where this war was intense for four decades, and that side of it was espionage espionage and covert action are two different things espionage is quite simply stealing the secrets of your adversary it's very important to know what your adversary is thinking both sides carried out intense espionage against each other for more than four decades and in writing this book i was peering into this particular world not of covert action not of people carrying guns and starting wars or carrying out assassinations but just silently in the shadows, trying to slip away and steal the secrets of the Soviet Union.
1: And your new book actually centers, as you said, around uh, primarily the work of Adolf Tolkachev, who became an agent for the CIA after he made contact in a rather interesting way. Uh, Will you talk a little bit about his method of reaching out and his difficulty establishing a relationship even after he had initially made real contact
2: The Soviet Union was a giant prison, a closed society. The KGB, which did the spying abroad, also did it at home. In other words, it was the secret police. And one way that the Soviet Union tried to protect itself was to reject contact with foreigners. And the KGB had teams of people roving the streets trying to spot any foreigners. And the foreigners who lived and worked in Moscow, including the Americans, found the KGB followed them everywhere. Even when they took their dog out for a walk, KGB man was following them. So this was a very difficult environment for the CIA to try and find and recruit spies. And in fact, they had very, very few. And one of the reasons that they were so reluctant, you might even say a little bit scared, was that any Russian they might approach and even strike up a conversation with, that person could get in a lot of trouble and maybe accused of treason and executed so it was immensely dangerous and when people did approach the CIA and say I'd like to help you or give you some information it was often assumed they were a trap they were called a dangle in other words somebody that the KGB like bait was putting out there to try and grab the CIA so when this man Adolf Tolkachev first approached an American filling up his car at a gas station in Moscow and he came up to the man and said, I'd like to talk to you. The man said, well, it'll be difficult to talk right here. And then Tolkachev gave him a note and disappeared. What Tolkachev didn't know is the man he had picked out to approach at the gas station actually was the head of the CIA in Moscow, in the Moscow station. So Tolkachev essentially volunteered that first time, but the CIA was afraid to talk to him because they thought he could be a KGB trap. And Kolkachev didn't give up. He was a very determined individual, had his own ideals of what the world should be like, was very disenchanted with the Soviet Union, wanted to change things, and he essentially was out to destroy the Soviet Union as best he could by leaking their military secrets, and he tried again in February. The first approach was January. He tried again in February. He tried again, and he tried several times, but headquarters of the CIA in Langley, Virginia, said to the Moscow station, "He probably a trap. Don't respond. Don't take him up on his offer. So here you have a guy who was sincerely trying to offer very sensitive information to the CIA, and they weren't taking it.
1: And he was not, by any means, a trained spy, right? He was an engineer. No,
2: it's what made him different than a lot of the others. If you look at the list of Cold War spies that came from the Soviet bloc, almost all of them were either in the KGB or in the military intelligence or somehow associated with diplomacy or the security services. Tolkachev, he worked in a laboratory that built radars for Soviet warplanes, but he was an engineer. And he was never trained at espionage, but he did a lot of it.
1: And while his entry into the world of the spy game came in the late 1970s, the event that led him to that point where he felt so compelled to reach out and try to make contact really started decades earlier with his wife's family. Can you talk a little bit about his wife's childhood and how the events that happened then co with events happening in the 70s to sort of drive Tolkachev to this moment in his life?
2: Yes. Tolkachev was 14 years old, uh, a 14-year-old boy growing up in Moscow when World War II broke out. And a month after Germany invaded the Soviet Union, German planes bombed Moscow. Moscow was a city at the time built of timber and a lot of wood, and the Germans dropped incendiary bombs. And the planes got all the way through to Moscow because the Soviet Union had very primitive radar. Radar was invented in the 30s. The Soviet Union was way behind. So they couldn't spot the bombers. And Tolkachev and all people of his generation ran for cover in the Moscow metro stations to hide from the bombers. So in response to that, the Soviet authorities realized they needed to train young people to study radar, to build better radar. And he got sucked up into this. But he was sent to essentially the equivalent of a vocational high school to study radar. He was then sent to the equivalent of a university to study radar. All the years of World War II and for several years afterwards, he's studying. And finally, uh, after the war, he was sent to a top-secret institute in Moscow, only 20 minutes from where he lived, and said, here's your first job, you're going to build radar. And at that institute, he met a young woman named Natasha, she was eight years younger. Um, it was the 50s. It was an optimistic time. They fell in love, and they got married in 1957. They got married the year of Sputnik. They thought things would get better in the Soviet Union. They thought that the war and everything was behind them. Well, Natasha had grown up an orphan. Why was she an orphan? Her mother and her father were purged by Stalin. Her mother was accused of being a subversive and was executed. Her father sent to the gulag for a decade. And when her father came out of the gulag after the war, he lived only a year or two, told her what had happened, and died. So she was very, very torn up about the legacy of Stalin. And Tolkachev, when he married her, he had the same feelings. They were quietly working in the system. Natasha worked at the same institute. She worked in the antenna department, and yet... At night, at home, they were just full of resentment at what had happened to her family. They thought things would get better in the 50s during the period called the thaw, and they were optimistic, but by the 60s, that optimism was passing away because the thaw, hopes were never realized. There was a little bit of loosening up, especially in the arts, but the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, the crushing of the Prague Spring, really put an end to it. Now... Natasha and Adi, as he was called, that was his nickname, Adi, had a son in 1965. So in the late 60s, even though Tolkachev was very disenchanted, he didn't do much about it. But by the early 70s, things had really gone bad in the Soviet Union. It was the period known as stagnation. There were bread lines. You couldn't even buy a pair of jeans. And Tolkachev said, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And it was all because of his resentment about the past about what had happened to Natasha, and, you know, she was two years old when her parents were taken from her. She grew up an orphan, and this bitterness drove him to do something. Uh, By the way, millions of families, and people in the Soviet Union were affected by those purges in 1937 and 1938, and a lot of them didn't do anything about it. Tolkachev acted.
1: And his story is really fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, One thing that struck me is that he is so deeply disillusioned with his country that it seems like the risk involved in what he was doing. I don't know that I would say it didn't really bother him, but it was negligible compared to what he wanted to do. I have
2: a couple of thoughts about that. The first is, Polkachev himself. Because of what had happened to Natasha, orphaned at two years old, by Stalin, um, all that misery, he did not want to put his family through that. He had a young son. And so he waited almost 10 years as he stewed over this because he knew that if he did something uh, against the authorities, if he did something publicly, he could easily be arrested. And he didn't want to put them through that. That occurred to him. He thought about that hard. Also he thought maybe I could do something simple like hand out pamphlets on the street. He described himself as somebody who sort of had the heart of a dissident. And he thought about that for 10 minutes and realized if I start handing out pamphlets on the street, they're going to arrest me and I'm going to be in prison. So he had, he found himself driven to take bigger risks. And in many ways, it was because he wanted to do more damage than just pamphlets. Now, the bigger risks... The spying were, from the beginning, a huge risk to himself, to his family, and to the CIA case officers he met with. Uh, Espionage was an order of magnitude more risky than handing out pamphlets, and he knew that. And he told the CIA, everything we do is dangerous. So from the beginning, he knew he was entering a different world, a life-threatening world. He was exceedingly determined. To carry this out, he proposed to the CIA when they first started talking to him a plan that would go over 12 years in seven stages. He had it all worked out. He was an engineer. He gave them drawings of his apartment. He told them exactly, you know, how his office looked down to the dimensions of his desk. He was very precise. So this guy entered the world of danger and risked himself knowingly and with a goal that he described to the cia as doing the maximum damage to the soviet union in the shortest possible time
0: next up we will hear about some of the surprising ways that Tolkachev got information from his engineering job to the
1: cia And I kind of love that what really did the most damage was, in terms of his behaviors and how he procured information is what would really be considered low-tech today, but even then was a little bit low-tech. He would take these documents from his offices, walk home for lunch, take pictures of all of them, pack them back up, go back to the office and refile everything. Um, and I have to wonder, I know you mentioned in the book that there was... Part of the reason he was doing this was that there wasn't that much security around sort of people looking at and pulling these documents. But can you speak a little bit about the level of danger he was putting himself in just in doing this, in walking out with top secret documents and carrying them on the street home and then back?
2: You know, this was all his idea. He told the CIA a couple of months after they started working together, there's this big security gap in my office, which is I work with all the secret stuff, but if I put it in my overcoat and walk home, it was a 20-minute walk to his apartment, nobody will stop me on the way out. And if I bring the files back and put them back by 5 o'clock, they won't know they've been missing. So he did that, especially at the beginning of the operation, when there was somewhat lax security. And the CIA's problem was there were no Xerox machines then. Xerox machines in the Soviet Union were locked up. Like I said, the country was a prison. And uh Tolkachev couldn't go to Kinkos or FedEx and make copies. So how to make copies? And the CIA struggled with this in terms of coming up with a proper camera. And there were several spy cameras involved with the story, but the point of your question is what worked and one of the things that worked here was that they decided to give him a Pentax M E thirty five millimeter film camera the kind of camera that you'd find around the neck of any tourist anywhere in the world. A very, And they gave him a clamp for which he could hold it steady and clamp to the back of a kitchen chair. And so using this very simple method of a standard 35mm camera, Tolkachev walked the documents in his coat out of the office at lunch, 20 minutes home, nobody was home, his wife was at work, his son was at school, laid the documents out on the table, photographed them with this 35mm camera, Stowed all the camera gear, walked back to his office, and nobody was the wiser for a long time for thousands and thousands of pages of documents. And the CIA was clever because they didn't want Kodak. Film laying around in Tolkachev's house. That would be a giveaway. There wasn't any Kodak film in the Soviet Union. But they wanted him to have a high-quality film. So they got very high-quality American film, and they secretly wound it into Soviet cassettes and put it in Soviet boxes. So if anybody saw it, it would look like he just had a Taurus camera out on his table. But he was doing this day after day. Not very high-tech, but exploiting the whole insecurity in his building, and it worked.
1: Incredibly effectively. I mean, he got blueprints, documents, plans. He revealed a decade out of planning that the Soviets were doing for the future, as well as details on their existing technologies. And he knew he was sharing important information. But I wonder if he realized just how important and how long reaching his work was going to be. Do you think he really grasped the gravity of like how much he was really helping the United States?
2: In terms of the time it would take, he thought it would take more than a decade, and he had all these stages, and so it it turned out that he fulfilled that goal years before he thought he would. By year three of doing this, he had pretty much given the CIA everything he said was going to take him for 12 years. At the same time, he knew very well how significant it was, and uh, you know, his hands every day, his whole life from when he was 14 years old, was wrapped up in this issue of radar. Radar is extremely important, especially in the kind of war that the Cold War was, where two sides are faced off against each other on hair-trigger alert. And it's very important to get early warning if you're to be attacked, and that's what radar does. And in the air and dogfights and air-to-air combat, radar can make the whole difference between life and death. And he had devoted his whole life to that, so he had a lot of knowledge and. The Soviet Union had the largest land borders in the world, and they had to defend those land borders. We were lucky. We were between two oceans and a continent away, but they had Europe on their doorstep, and the Cold War lines ran right through the heart of Europe. So for the Soviet Union, defending itself against a powerful NATO and a powerful American uh, threat, and there was a threat. This was a military confrontation. We had bombers that we were planning to fly under their radar, and... In the years Tolkachev worked, we were building something called the Strategic Cruise Missile. Now we're all very familiar with the cruise missile, but it was a top-secret thing back then, and when it eventually was invented, its goal was to fly under the Soviet land-based radars. Well, if you were investing billions of dollars in that Strategic Cruise Missile, which could hug the terrain and fly under the radar, would you want to know what the radar capabilities were? Well, when Tolkachev told us that they had this gap, which is the gap was at low altitudes, their radars didn't work, under 900 feet. Well, that helped us build a very threatening cruise missile that the Kremlin worried could fly right under the radars and land in Red Square. And you know what? A couple of years later, a 19-year-old boy from Germany flew a Cessna right through those radars and landed in Red Square.
1: Hmm. And you mentioned, you know, that he had really uh, shown us this gap and the money that he saved the U.S. on weapons R&D by revealing these sort of gaps uh, really saved the U.S. quite a bit of bacon and ended up kind of being the reason that your book is named what it is.
2: Over and over again, Tolkotov brought us information about Soviet air defenses and To most people, this thing, air defenses, what does that mean? You know, it seems sort of vague, and so what? This isn't nuclear missiles. It sounds something very distant, but actually it was one of the most hard-fought issues of the Cold War, which was how could our airplanes and bombers sneak in, or our cruise missiles sneak in, or how could they be prevented from sneaking in? And we had a long period of confusion and uncertainty about whether the Soviets had strong radars or not, and how they worked. Well, along comes Tolkachev, and for several years he starts providing blueprints, top secret documents, all the information we needed to evaluate these radars. On the other side, those that would be flying in warplanes we might face in a you know in a dogfight, and those on the ground that might be there to prevent our bombers from getting through. At one point, Tolkachev even provided the CIA circuit boards taken from Soviet radars so we could study the metallurgy and the transistors everything and so by essentially neutering Soviet air defenses he saved the United States from research that we didn't need from weapons that we didn't need and the Air Force at one point estimated in response to a request from the CIA that Tolkachev had saved $2 billion in research and development that wasn't necessary and that estimate was even before he gave them another six or 7,000 pages of top-secret documents. So knowing what your adversary is doing, having a a spy reading the mail and looking at the blueprints was of immeasurable value, and it didn't happen very often in the Cold War.
1: And I imagine there are probably benefits that really couldn't be quantified in terms of like R&D monetary numbers.
2: I mean, the whole idea that he had saved us $2 billion is why I titled the book The Billion Dollar Spy, because these were real savings. There was one radar effort that was being made by the Army and Navy to come up with some kind of radar. And when they saw the information from Tolkachev, they completely reversed course and built something that would be more effective. Right. So they saved $70 million just from one thing in the in the thousands of pages of documents. That's how valuable it was. Other parts of it, you know, that didn't go, say, to the White House in a blue-border document. This wasn't the kind of intelligence for politicians. It was the intelligence we used to build our own weapons. And some of it went right into the top-secret programs for the stealth bomber, for the cruise missile, for the F-15, and the things that we were building because the Cold War until the end was a giant military confrontation, and we were constantly seeking an advantage in that military confrontation. So one of the things I discovered here is that Tolkachev's intelligence, that the, the positive intelligence, as the CIA calls it, the stuff, the secrets that he actually stole, some of it went right smack into our top-secret military programs, the black programs, the skunk works, the places where we were trying to build radars to read the mail, of the Soviet radars.
1: And I want to turn now to another one of the major players in this narrative, Edward Lee Howard. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how his story plays out and how he goes from being uh, an agent of the CIA to an enemy of the U.S.?
2: Edward Lee Howard was a young man growing up in New Mexico, and he, he had done a couple things, worked in the Peace Corps, got a, master's degree in business from American University. And he kind of had a couple of middle management jobs, one in Chicago, but he was bored. And he wanted something better with his life. And he rode away to CIA. And he approached the CIA at a time when they were trying to find um, best and the brightest people that had some economic good sense, not only spies that were just, you know, daring do, but people that could think on their feet. And he got accepted. So Howard went into the career training program of the CIA and he went through a year standard year of training which is tradecraft everything the whole training thing and he, he was hoping for kind of a good comfy spying job like in Switzerland but because of several people moving around he got sent and assigned to Moscow and he said, well, it'll be good for my career. He accepted the assignment. Um, he was married and had just had a young son. So his whole family got the special passports for their diplomatic cover in Moscow. He was going to become the CIA's handler of Tolkachev. And he was trained in all the special tradecraft for working in Moscow, how to evade detection, how to, you know, get away from the KGB. And he was just on the verge of going, literally within weeks. And this would be his first assignment abroad for the CIA, although, as I mentioned, he had worked in the Peace Corps, but in Latin America. he had never really worked in the Soviet Union like this, and there's a routine process when you're about ready to go abroad for the CIA, you get a lie detector test. Well, Howard flunked his lie detector test on some question about whether there was a crime somewhere in his past, and the CIA said, take it again. He flunked it again. He flunked it four times. Whoops. And... When that happened, even though he had gotten his special passports and, you know, diplomatic passports and was about ready to move to Moscow, the CIA said, we cannot send to Moscow to handle our most valuable spy, a young man who's flunked lie detector tests four times. So Howard was fired from the CIA. He was fired sort of unceremoniously. Um, you know, the CIA kind of hoped he would uh, find his way. He was young enough that he'd find another career. And for a while... He moved back to New Mexico. He got a job in the state legislature there. He seemed to be recovering a little bit from the shock of being fired. But actually, he was deeply resentful. He was really angry what had happened to him. He felt they had never given him a chance. And he decided to get back at the CIA by betraying their most valuable assets. Okay, now let's pick
0: right back up with Mr. Hoffman telling us about Howard's decision to turn on the United States.
2: Howard, uh, not too long after he had settled in New Mexico, decided he was going to get his revenge. And uh, he at one point walked into the Soviet consulate in Washington and said, you know, my name is Alex and I have something for you. And he showed a Xerox of his old CIA building pass. And a little while after that, somebody with a Russian accent called his house and said, um, we more interested in the manuscript you have to sell, and pretty soon all this coded language begins and Howard uh begins to deal with the soviets and the k g b um he meets them in europe he meets met them once in um vienna and you know tolkachev at this point is five or six ye- five years into espionage for for the united states twenty one meetings were held with tolkachev on the streets of Moscow almost all of them within three miles of the front door of KGB headquarters. They were not detected in any of those 21 meetings. But the KGB got wind of this because Howard told them.
1: And uh, I, I don't want to give away much more of the story in terms of how it plays out because it's so sort of beautifully orchestrated in the book that I want people to definitely experience that for themselves. But what I do want to ask you about... You managed to convince the CIA to declassify a lot of the source material that you used. How did you manage that?
2: You know, I uh, begged, cajoled, implored, lobbied. I I tried to work a lot at different angles. Um, I went to the CIA and said, look, you know, I'm a writer. I want to work as an outsider, as a journalist. Um, I need the information. Please declassify the files. And it took a long time. It took a couple of years. And... In the end, what they gave me was put through their own declassification process. So they didn't give me anything that was secret. They gave me declassified files, which had many you know, gaps and redactions and right. things deleted. Um, so in many ways, I got the standard treatment, and it took a long time, but they came through with enough of the operational files that I could write the book. It was a tough, tough thing to get it all together, and in the end, the positive intelligence, the business about radars and what Tolkachev actually stole, uh, I didn't get any documents on, and I had to put that together myself by interviewing people, and this book is based on 944 pages of operational cables that the CIA declassified for me, but it's also based on extensive interviewing with the people that were involved. And this is something that all historians encounter, which is documents initially get you very excited, but after a while you find it's the human stories and the people who participated that are an essential element of telling the story.
1: And you were absolutely no stranger to the Cold War before writing this book. You covered that era of global politics extensively in your journalism career. You won a Pulitzer Prize for your previous book about the Cold War arms race titled The Dead Hand. But I'm wondering that even with that level of familiarity that you had, did you come across any revelatory information while working on this book that really surprised you?
2: Well, there's a lot of different kinds of surprises. I'll tell you one. Okay. I always had it in the back of my mind that CIA officers were out there on the street and when they had an agent or a spy they'd say you know can you tell me about the latest ss-18 missile and i had the impression of people that were spies for america both the spies and the case officers who handled them as having these detailed discussions about top secret information but what i learned is the cia uh, has two kinds of people out there working and many of them are like these case officers i described in the book who are not schooled in all the details of the missiles and the radars, they're schooled in human psychology, which is how do you handle the spy? How do you look him in the eye? How do you steady his nerves? And that itself is a whole discipline. And those guys who were running the Tolkachev operation and planning to meet with him and thinking about his needs, they actually had no idea what was in those rolls of film he was giving them. They passed those back to the headquarters, and somebody back there... Worried about that. So for me, it was quite interesting to see that in the cockpit of espionage, a lot of it was very much this human factor and that that's what case officers focused on. And the whole complex, very, very dense business of the military confrontation was not something that a case officer dealing with Tolkachev worried about, but he did think about Tolkachev wants some Western rock music for his son. Now, if we give him an album that says Uriah Heep on it, and someone spots that in his apartment, will that be suspicious? Maybe we should give him an, the records, the music from Uriah Heep that his son wants, on a beat-up old cassette with no label. And maybe we should buy that cassette in East Germany or someplace that won't look that suspicious. So this choreography of espionage, the the human factor, the psychology, the body language, the all of that was a specialty, and I think that readers of this book will come to appreciate and understand that choreography in a way I certainly did that was much different than my very simple-minded, stereotyped idea of what spies did.
1: Well, and I will say this. I really, really loved uh how you wrote about David Rolfe, who was his second case officer, and how he really viewed himself as – uh sort of an advocate as a connection between Tolkachov and the people he was reporting back to. Like, that really struck me as something I never would have really thought about in those terms. Uh, so I appreciate that because it really did sort of open up a whole vista of thinking to me.
2: And as I was saying, you know, even for the case officers, this uh, choreography of espionage was an art form. And it was uh, something that they s- spent an enormous amount of time trying to perfect and not screw up. And because David Rolfe said, I know if I make one mistake, it could cost off his life.
1: OK, on to slightly lighter fare, I have one last question, which is uh, not really so deeply related specifically to the story. But one of the things again, another thing that never occurred to me, uh, but which jumped out at me over and over in reading this book was how common it seemed for husbands and wives to both be working for intelligence agencies. And on the one hand, it makes perfect sense, but it's something that just never occurred to me. And again, this is probably informed by uh, being a person who takes in, you know, modern culture and entertainment where there's often more often than not, there's a whole secret life situation going on. So I'm wondering just uh, in your research, how often that scenario of married couples both being part of an agency is sort of de rigueur, or were those outliers that just happened to come up a lot in this book?
2: Almost all CIA case officers that went abroad who were married, um, both husband and wife worked for the CIA. Uh, The wives were usually put on a contract, and the husbands were full-time employees. So the wives had a very important role, and it was oftentimes... Obscured by the fact that they weren't the case officer, but for example in David Rolfe's case when he goes on this huge surveillance detection run to try and escape the KGB for a meeting he was going to have. He actually went out of the country to try and fool them, came back early when they weren't looking. And as soon as he comes back in the country, he takes a cab, he gets out of a cab, he takes a metro. He does all these things, right, including a duffel bag that's got a disguise that's brought by one uh, another guy's wife. To his wife at the school where she's teaching, and then she drives and meets him at the metro and picks him up, and then he puts on to the sky. So, a, a lot of what the wives did was part of this constant, shadowy handing off and trying to escape this KGB surveillance. And because they knew what was going on, because they were sometimes driving their husband someplace, the KGB was lulled a little bit by the routines that they went under. And if the wife drove to school every day and drove home back and forth every single day. They kind of lost interest in that. And that was an opportunity. And if the wife could stick a little duffel bag inside the car, the KGB couldn't see. They were very, very important in helping these operations actually succeed
1: it's so fascinating to me because there were so many incidents just like the one you described where even at the very beginning of the book you're talking about a gentleman and his wife it's actually two diplomats i think and their wives in a car and one of the wives is holding a jack-in-the-box which is this pop-up silhouette that will replace the silhouette of her husband after he jumps out of the car when they go on a turn disguised as a birthday cake and I was like, "His really, his wife just did that." <laughs> so yeah, I, I really she was loved part that part of
2: the operation. And she was uh, under contract, and she, you know, uh, the that thing, the jack in the box, which is a pop up cutout to fool the KGB. You know, she when he jumped out, she would reach forward from the back seat and pull a lever that popped up that thing and pretended like nothing was happening. And when that car went zooming down the boulevard, and the KGB. Went zooming after thinking the guy was still in the car when actually he was in disguise on a side street going off to meet the spy.
1: I loved it. And the book is so full of details like that that I'm sure our listeners will absolutely delight in. Uh, The book The Billion Dollar Spy has been out for several weeks now and it has gotten rave reviews and well-deserved. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, So I think people who are fascinated by spy stories and espionage and intelligence and history will just find a feast of information. So thank you so very much for taking time to chat with us today. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it.
2: Well, thanks for having me. And I hope readers enjoy it.
1: I am confident that they shall. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. I love, love, loved the information that came up at the end of that interview that Mr. Hoffman shared with us about CIA spouses. That really surprised me, but it made so much sense.
0: I have always been kind of curious about that. Like, if you're, if you're a spy, what happens to your spouse? So, again, this book is called The Billion Dollar Spy. It's by David E. Hoffman, and it is available now, and you can learn more about it at davidehoffman.com, and you can follow Mr. Hoffman on Twitter at The Dead Hand.
1: Uh, Okay, and I have a little bit of listener mail as well. This comes from our listener, Ellen, and she says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I've been listening to your podcast for almost a year now. I feel that it is necessary to tell you why I started listening, because I know Holly has a love for Disney that I also share. I have always enjoyed history, and I found your podcast when I was training for the Dopey Challenge. If you're not aware, the Dopey Challenge consists of running a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon, and a full marathon at Walt Disney World during Walt Disney World Marathon Weekend every January. Since I was going to be running 48.6 miles over the course of four days, I needed to listen to more than just music in my training, and your podcast got me through many long hours of running. I did complete the Dopey, and attached is a picture of me with all my medals. I also wanted to share that the first podcast I listened to was the Hetty Green episode, and you read a fan mail about Kendall Mint Cake. I couldn't believe this because my brother-in-law grew up in Kendall, and I thought it was a crazy coincidence to immediately know what you were talking about because I have had Kendall Mint Cake many times and even visited Kendall. I felt like it was time to write because I have some podcast ideas to share, and she shares some with us. I'm not going to give those away because uh, I really love them. She uh offered up a couple of different female astronomers from the early 20th century. And I think we know that I love astronomy. So high level of likelihood they'll eventually make it into circulation. I don't know when. But so, Ellen, thank you for this awesome email because I knew what the Dopey Challenge was. I ran the Goofy, and Tracy was actually with me on that trip, uh, before the Dopey was officially established. And at that point, we used to do kind of an informal version that we called the Dopey, but the 10K didn't exist yet, so it was just the 5K, the half, and the full. Uh, I cannot imagine doing the Dopey. I guess I could. Nope. I guess I could. It's only six more miles than the weekend I did, but I will tell you this. Nope. I don't, I don't want to run any more marathons. (laughs) I'll run a half every month with a smile on my face, but the full marathon just, I got real angry about mile 18. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) I I occasionally will think to myself, maybe I should run a marathon and I don't even get all the way through marathon before I'm like, no. Like, I would definitely do another half. That half was pretty fun. And I think I can yeah. do the training for the half. But there's just so much training involved in a full marathon. And I, I don't have time for that.
1: That's what it is. And when you're doing something like this, which is an amazing feat, uh, where you're training to run multiple races over four days. In your training, there are big chunks of your life that just don't exist anymore because you're putting on mileage. Like, you have to kind of do mock weekends that aren't the full mileage that you do on something like the Dopey, but where you'll run a lot on a Friday and then a lot more on a Saturday and then a lot more on a Sunday. And usually they're so long and one right after the other that you're exhausted and you really can't get anything else done that weekend. So my hat is off to you, Ellen. She um, looks so joyous with all of her medals. Thank you for sharing those. You are awesome. That is a huge accomplishment and I applaud anyone and everyone that even undertakes it, whether you finish or not. That's just some gumption that I have to respect. Uh, if you would like to write to us, share your stories of gumption or Disney visits or talk about spying, you can do that at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also go to facebook.com slash Mist in history on Twitter at Mist in history at pinterest.com slash Mist in history. We have a Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Instagram at Mistinhistory. And uh, we have a Spreadshirt store at MissedInHistory.spreadshirt.com where you can get all kinds of history-themed goodies from shirts to phone cases and everything in between. Uh, if you would like to visit our parent site, that is HowStuffWorks.com. We encourage you to do so. You can also visit us on the web at missedinhistory.com and check out our uh, archive of all of the episodes that have ever existed plus show notes for all of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on as well as the occasional other blog post or goodie and some cool visuals to go along with all these things. So again, visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and mystichistory.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com